Good morning, everyone. All right, we'll take it. Uh, today is a momentous day uh, for the Aka family, not just because we dedicated two children at once. Uh, we wanted to wait until Raylan was four and was squirmy enough to make it hard. Um, no, today's a momentous day because Tiffany and I are also celebrating 12 years of marriage. Uh, on this day, 12 years ago, we got married uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. That's uh, 12 years seems like a very long time, seems like a legitimate number. Um, something substantial has happened. Uh, and this morning, we're going to talk about something that has been critical to our marriage. It is critical to relationships. Forgiveness. Forgiveness. There's no magic wand with marriage, but if you don't have forgiveness, uh, 12 years won't happen. Six years might not happen, right? Certainly 24 years. I know some of you are celebrating 40 plus years. Forgiveness is a critical ingredient in marriage and also in relationships. And it's something that the Christian faith is meant to be marked by, right? We're a whole religion. We're a whole faith based on forgiveness, That through Christ, his death and resurrection on the cross, we have been forgiven. In turn, we are meant to be a forgiving people. We are meant to share this forgiveness with others. But so often, that is not the case. That is not how we live our lives, if we're honest. And it's not how we're known in the wider society, and wider culture. We're often known as... Uh, petty people who hold on to grudges, who are easily offended, who don't seek peace and reconciliation and forgiveness. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage in Matthew that I think gets at some important questions for us, namely, why is this the case? If Christians are meant to be marked by forgiveness, why are we so often not marked by forgiveness? Why is this the case, and then what can we do about it? So why is this? What can we do about it? And we're going to look at uh, a passage in Matthew. It's 18, chapter 18, 21 through 35. Uh, if you have your Bible or an app on you, uh, turn there now. It's Matthew 18, 21 through 35. There's also uh, Bibles on the end of the rows that you can check out. Uh, and if you would, please stand with me in honor of the reading of the God's Word here. This is Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, 
Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. You can be seated. Amen. So, forgiveness. Why do we struggle with it? What can we do about it? On the surface of things, this passage is pretty straightforward. We can imagine Jesus is traveling with his disciples, his followers, and Peter, who's kind of one of the like inner three, right? He's not just one of the 12. He's like inner three. Peter comes up to him with this question. And I can imagine that somebody probably did something recently to offend Peter, right? Somebody was doing something, and Peter was keeping a list. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go up to Jesus and ask about this. How many times, Jesus? It might have been one of the other disciples. It might have been a family member, someone he had regular interaction with. And, and theologians say that uh, rabbis in this day and age would teach that forgiving someone three times, like that was, man, you are on top of your game. You are a holy person. So Peter, you know, he's kind of like, seven times, Jesus. Is that, did I nail it? Right? I'm doing so good, Jesus. But Peter is approaching Jesus for a rule. He's approaching him for a number. He's not approaching him for a philosophy of forgiveness, for a way of life of forgiveness. He's looking to have a rule so that he can forgive up until then and then stop. I completely relate to that. I do well with rules. I like discipline. Uh, I like some rigidity, right? I like something I can measure against and go, oh man, I forgave him seven times. I'm pretty awesome. But Jesus doesn't give Peter a rule. Instead, he blows his mind. So Peter approaching Jesus, patting himself on the back, Jesus says 70 times 7. Forgive 70 times 7. And Jesus isn't just giving him a larger number, right, that you would have to keep a complicated ledger, right? You almost need an Excel file to get that worked out. No, he's giving him a theology, a doctrine, a truth about forgiveness. And to nail this point home, he says in 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven. This is how God's economy works. We are forgiving people. And then he brings this truth out with this uh, beautiful, beautiful and heartbreaking, and if we're honest, haunting story. Forgiving king and the wicked servant. You can imagine the king was settling his accounts, calling one person in at a time. And when this guy's number got called, he didn't have to wonder what this was about. The number, the, the actual like physical number that this guy owed, 10,000 talents. I've seen various commentaries 
kind of get at what that would be in modern dollars. But depending on if you adjust for inflation, we're talking somewhere north of $1 billion. $1 billion. So this guy wasn't like, huh, I wonder what the king needs me for today. He knows what it's about. He goes in there with an astronomical debt that there was no coming back from. There was no coming back from this level of debt. And and I don't know where you lived back in 2008, 2009, when the recession hit and then started really taking hold in various neighborhoods. Uh, But where we lived in East Nashville, on our street, it wasn't even a long street, right? We're talking like almost half a mile. There were seven houses that got foreclosed. Where because of losing jobs, losing income, uh, inflated interest rates, people could no longer pay the debt that they owed. And their house was worth less than they owed. It's called being underwater. What a terrible phrase, right? Being underwater. A feeling of drowning in your debt with no way out. On our street, we had uh, families who even had their uh, possessions thrown out onto the lawns as they were not just locked out, they would put boards over the door and over the windows. That's the kind of crushing debt that is unimaginable to be underwater. And this man, this is where he is. He has no hope to pay back the debt on his own. So keep that in mind. But faced with the dire consequences of the situation, in the presence of the king, the one person who can do anything about it, he pleads for patience, for more time. He promises that somehow he will pay the king back. But we both know that's impossible. Somewhere deep down, this man knew that was impossible. The man was delusional. There was no way he was going to pay back this debt. So the best that this man can hope for as he approaches the king is some more time. right? But the king, in his power, in his authority, and in his mercy, offers him something he could never conceive of. Freedom. Mercy, a canceling of that debt. Not just more time to stay in that place, right? To wait to be called back into the throne room, but total forgiveness. The best he could come up with was more time. The best the king could offer was freedom. Brothers and sisters, this is where you and I are outside of Christ. We are this indebted servant whose debt is more than we could ever pay back. To put it bluntly, our lives and our sin and our brokenness are underwater. They're underwater. We owe more than our lives are worth in our sin, in our rebellion. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin, death, right? Your sin gets you death. You don't need more time. You don't need uh, a new game plan, right? You're going to start a new business that somehow, no, or you're going to pull yourself up by your moral bootstraps. That that sin that has just been busting you up for as long as you can remember, one day you're going to get a handle on it. 
Or one day you're going to do enough good to outweigh the bad. No, we don't need more time. We need the kind of freedom, the kind of mercy, the kind of forgiveness that our King, God the Father, in his abundant mercy can and does give us by faith in Christ. Forgiveness, a blank slate, debt-free, restored The story is stark, and the Bible paints our situation in those same terms. Sadly here, I wish the story ended here. I wish at this point it was like, boom, done. The guy is forgiven. He goes out, good times, ever after. Um, That's kind of how I'd like it to end, because then I could feel better about myself, I think. But sadly, I'm still identifying with the wicked servant, and it takes this dark turn. We want this servant to be a hero, don't we? We want him to go out and his whole life has been changed. He's had this encounter with the merciful king and now he's like the best guy ever. You want to hang out with this guy because he just loves everybody. But no, he goes back to business as usual. And think about this. His family was about to go to debtor's prison with him forever. He doesn't even go kiss his wife and kids. We're saved. And I think back to my block those years ago in the recession. Imagine if instead of throwing these people's possessions out onto the lawn, the bank showed up with the deed. Here you go. It's yours. You don't even have to pay us a dime back. It is done. Right, the king, the king absorbed that debt. That money didn't just go away. That was a loss for the king. In the same way, if the banks showed up and did this, it would be a loss for the banks. But if those seven families had been given those houses back out of the blue for no reason, nothing that they had done, there would have been the block party of the century on my street. Seriously, it would have been dangerous. Like Fourth of July, Christmas, and like Cinco de Mayo right? Something bonkers would have been going on on my street, and it would have been awesome. And I want this guy to have that moment. I want him to go rejoice in the grace that he's received, and instead, he goes right back to being like a middle manager to go collect some more debt. He sees a fellow servant who owes him far less than he owed, And instead of saying, man, the craziest thing just happened, forget about the money you owe me. Be well. He starts to yell at him. He berates him. And then he physically chokes him. And then in a cruel twist, he drags him before the justice system whose jaws he just escaped from, and he throws him. He goes right back to normal life as if grace had not happened. As if grace had not happened. The king, of course, he hears about it. It's his kingdom after all. He doesn't miss much. And he brings the wicked servant before him to find out why, after receiving such an abundant forgiveness, he would not have automatically offered that forgiveness to his fellow servants. And with that, the king puts the man into 
debtor's prison. And then as if this whole parable wasn't haunting enough, Jesus ends with the words that if we don't forgive our brothers from our hearts, the same will be done to us. This is sobering, brothers and sisters. So we are meant to be a people marked by grace who live lives of forgiveness. That's who Christians are. That's what the kingdom is about. But we find ourselves doing something different very often. I think this morning, uh, if we think about it, if we take a moment of honest introspection, we'll see this. I'd have to say, looking back at my life, that I've spent a lot of time building, maintaining, and populating my heart's own debtor's prison. That I have put my friends, I have put my family, I've put people I barely know locked away for offenses, big, small, for perceived slights, for just maybe even not noticing me in the way I wanted them to notice me. I've locked them away into a debtor's prison that I've built in my heart. And we dress it up in nice terms, right? Like, we've just got something to work out. When's the working out period, right? When's that happening? Or, you know, their personality just doesn't clash with mine. Oh, brothers and sisters, we hold on and we lack the forgiveness that is meant to be the uh, central theme of our moral and ethical life because of the grace we've received in Christ So years ago, on that same street, I got to spend a lot of time with an elderly neighbor uh, who we met right after his wife had passed away. Um, He was just hitting his 80s. And we would sit on on his couch and we would talk and get to know each other. And over many, many afternoons, he told me stories from his life. And almost all of them had a central theme, how someone had hurt him or had wronged him. And how this whole time, He was holding on to that. And I was the only one who came to that couch. Because everyone else was locked away in that debtor's prison. But one person, one story had marked his life almost more than any other. And it was his brother. His brother. And often I think that's the case, right? Those who are closest to us can hurt us the most. And we put them in like supermax. And so this brother, uh, they had had a feud for years. It had been going on and on, and, you know, it would kind of dip and rise, you know, it maybe flare up at Thanksgiving and then recede and then maybe spark back up around the next holiday, right? Uh, but this, this brother, he hadn't seen him in a while, and this neighbor and his wife, who was alive, this is in the late 80s, they had saved up all this money, and they were building a house out in Mount Juliet. They were going to get away from downtown, this nice, quiet house, and he was actually doing most of the work himself. So he'd work his job, drive up on the weekend, and work on this house. And then one night, after a particularly bad fight with his brother, his brother went, got crazy drunk, drove up, and lit the house on fire and burned it down. Burned it down. It wasn't insured. It wasn't set up in the proper way since he was doing it himself, and nothing came of that effort that dream that they had, it was gone. It was gone. That brother was locked away 
in the debtor's prison of this man's heart. And maybe your story isn't quite so dramatic. Maybe it is. Maybe there's someone who has abused you physically, emotionally. Maybe there's someone you can think of right now. And our next question is why? Why do we do it? If we do this, if we put people in the debtor's prison of our hearts, why do we do it? And I think the wicked servant points us to an answer. He was delusional about his debt. He was delusional about his debt. And because of that, he did not celebrate the grace of his king. If you think you can get your act together, if you think that you only need a little Jesus, you don't need life-saving, life transformation, I'm dead in my sins, I need to be brought into life kind of Jesus, if you only think you need, like, crutch Jesus, right, then you don't rejoice in the grace that he has given you. If you come before the throne of mercy and you ask for just a little more time, hey, Jesus, things are pretty good, mostly good. There's a couple things I could work out, but I think I'm doing all right. We don't realize the size of our debt. We say, have patience on me, and I'll pay you back, Jesus. I'll pay you back, Heavenly Father. We'll work this out. You can't be on a layaway plan with God. There's no restructuring your debt that's going to work here. Uh, Jesus puts it this way. He's at the home of a Pharisee who has not welcomed Jesus like you'd expect. Usually you come in the door uh, and you would get your feet cleaned, a sign of dignity and respect, and also you're wearing sandals, right? Like, let's take care of that. Uh, They don't do that for Jesus. They're reclining at a table, and this woman who, the only description we have of her is that she was a sinful woman, a sinful woman, who has somehow had this encounter with Jesus. She's been forgiven. She understands the depths of her sin and her brokenness. And she approaches Jesus, who's forgiven her, and she weeps for joy over his feet while she anoints his feet with uh, an expensive uh, ointment, an oil. And Jesus says about her, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. He who is forgiven little, forgives little. We don't move towards others marked by the grace we've received. And the true tragedy of downplaying our sin is that we don't rejoice enough in the mercy of God, the love of God. We don't enjoy it. We don't throw that block party that we need to have. We go back to business as usual. And I I saw this in my own heart. When when we can read the words of Paul, right? Paul, New Testament author, uh, wrote a bunch of the letters, who was like hardcore guy out to kill Christians, then got converted because he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. When he is writing a letter, sometimes he just goes off into rapturous joy because he's thinking about this grace. But yet, I don't know if you can relate to this, I can sometimes read Paul, like uh, from Ephesians 2.4, where he says, But God, being rich in mercy... 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I can read those words and go, cool. It's all right, I guess. I can be nonchalant about the mercy of my king. I can be casual. We were truly created for a deep and meaningful relationship with our creator, God. But through our own sin and the sin we've inherited from day one, we're on a path to destruction. Our hearts are full of endless rebellion. And while our fists were held against the Most High God in open threat against God, he moved towards us in mercy and love and said, no, that's not who you will be anymore. You will be forgiven. You will be redeemed. You will be debt-free. That is who you are. Even in the midst of our rebellion, it's a debt we can never pay. It's a mercy we could never earn. Yet in his grace, he has given it to us. So the big point, the driving point is a small view of sin leads to a small view and experience of grace, which leads to a lack of forgiveness in our lives. So I think that's what the why of this question, why do we not forgive more uh, as we fill up our debtor's prison But the the question always is, then what do we do about it? If that's the why, what do we do about it today? I've got kind of three applications here. We repent, we pray, and then we bask, right? I chose an intentionally weird word so we'd remember. Uh, Repent, pray, and bask. And that first one, repent. We first need to be honest that we have a debtor's prison. We need to be honest that we have done that, that we've locked people up, that maybe right now in this room you are thinking of somebody who's three rows behind you. And I can promise you, brothers and sisters, there will be no unity in the church if we don't actively practice forgiveness driven by the grace of Christ. We will fake it. We will fake it. We will all walk around in each other's debtor's prisons not knowing we're doing that not knowing that the person near me is my jailer. So first thing, we acknowledge the state of our prison. Who's in it? Who's in it? There will be people you need to confess to. People you need to probably actually approach and say, I am sorry this thing happened days ago, weeks ago, years ago, and I have held it against you this entire time. Would you forgive me? There will be people you need to go have that conversation. And sometimes they won't say sorry, right? Sometimes they'll be like, whatever, not a big deal. And you've been carrying it for a long time. And and as a side point, someone has to take the loss. When you let somebody know that they've hurt you and you've been holding it against them and they don't apologize, there's not this beautiful moment, right, where you're bringing peace and reconciliation and they just shut the door We have to take that loss as brothers and sisters. We don't get to lock them back up in the prison. We have to cancel the debt. And there'll be others uh, that you simply need to bring before the Lord. 
either because uh, they are dead, somebody passed away, someone that you didn't clear the air with or, or confess to, or maybe people that are dangerous to you, people who have done something uh, so violent towards you that to be around them is not safe. Bring those people before the Lord. Confess to the Lord what you've been doing with them in your heart. Ask him to break open the gates, to throw open the doors of your debtor's prison. But there will be certain situations, uh, broken relationships that took years to get that way and will take years of prayer to get that person out of debtor's prison. Where the pain runs so deep that the first couple times you even look at it, you can't even look at it directly. Right? You kind of just do that like side glance. Oof, not ready to deal with that. Not ready to go there. Right? Jesus, give me the strength. Jesus, give me the mercy to go there. Pray, pray, pray. Some forgiveness takes years of prayer and heart transformation. So we repent, we pray. And the last one, bask, right? Bask. I've got this like image of, you know, uh, sunbathing in the glory of the Lord, right? Just, it's radiating. You're just absorbing it with everything you've got, right? That's bask. Grace drives forgiveness. Grace drives forgiveness. So sit in, meditate on, pull up a chair and hang out in the presence of the grace of the Lord. Think about what you have received. That we are literally, all of us, free. If your faith is in Jesus Christ today, there is now no more debt against you, period. That means no matter what happens over the next 5, 10, 20, 40, 50, however many years you've got left on this planet, none of it will compare to the glory he has prepared for you for eternity. And we have that now. We have the opportunity to have the block party right now. So two ways to to get at some of this basking is get in the word, stay in the word. Read passages like where Paul just goes off about the grace of the Lord. Check your heart temperature. What's going on here? Lord, I'm just feeling nonchalant about this. I'm feeling cold. Lord, warm me up. Would your forgiveness pierce the hard callous of my heart. Go here, God. He will hear and respond to your prayers. So get in the word, stay in the word, and then gospel with each other. Share the grace of the good news. This sounds silly, and we do it kind of awkwardly, but like ask somebody in your Sunday school group, right, or your small group, hey, how is the mercy of the Lord hitting you this week? Do you care about it? Or is there a fellow servant you are currently choking out and trying to throw in debtor's prison? Where are you at? Let's go there with each other. Gospel with each other. Remind them, can you believe we've been forgiven everything? I don't know about you, but I'm a mess. And it's all gone. There's therefore now no condemnation for me. Can you believe that? For me. Let's party. That should be our reaction brothers and sisters. So, back to my neighbor. 
we hung out on that couch for a long time. And we got to know each other. And he had grown up kind of in the church and in the circles of the church. And he knew some stuff. And as we talked, we started talking about Jesus. And we started reading about Jesus. And this man put his faith back in Jesus. Or maybe for the first time. Who can tell? And as we got to know each other more and he put his faith in Jesus, we were able to have real conversations. So when those painful family members came up, what are we going to do about that? Can't leave them there. What's going on? And we would talk and we would pray and we would talk and we would pray. And then one day I went to his house and he almost threw open his door with excitement. And this, this is a man who didn't move very quickly and he was moving fast. I said, Will, you're never going to believe it. I was up at Home Depot, and I was in the parking lot. I was about to get into my car, and somebody yelled, Hey! And I kind of turned around, and there was a man there. He said, You know me? I said, Yeah, I know you. You're my brother. And he said, Will, I hadn't seen him in 15 years. And we stood there for a minute, wasn't sure what was going to happen. And I just said, I've got something I need to say to you. And he said, you could see my brother almost kind of get like fight ready. And I said, I forgive you. I forgive you for burning my house down. And that day, this is the crazy part. When we forgive others like that because we've been transformed by the forgiveness we've received, results in more joy in our own life. It helps us to appreciate on a different level the grace that we've been given. This neighbor, this friend, this brother in Christ was joyful that his brother had stepped out of those uh, prison walls because of the power of Jesus Christ. And then as weeks went by, they started getting together. They started having meals together. They started catching up and bridging the gap of 15 years, healing wounds that only the grace of our Lord can heal. And it wasn't magic. It was the power of Jesus Christ. So the bottom line, what I just want to leave all of us with this morning, Christ has paid our debt. The good news, the gospel, Christ has paid our debt. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. So if you've put your faith in Jesus, no matter how full your debtor's prison is, his grace is more powerful. His grace can transform that heart, can throw open those doors. So let your hearts be melted by that kind of grace. Figure out what it looks like to throw that block party and release those prisoners. You are not a jailer. You are a redeemed son or daughter of the Most High God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we ask for a hard and uh, maybe bitter rule on forgiveness, you give us uh, a story of abundant mercy that points us to the character of the God who loves us and who sent his son, Jesus, to die on our behalf, to take our punishment on the cross, Lord. 
That debt was not magically gone. That debt was taken on by Jesus, by the blood he shed on the cross. Lord, I pray that you would penetrate uh, just to our hearts and our marrow, Lord, that we would be transformed by this mercy. That we would be a people marked by forgiveness who don't hold on to things. Lord, and as quickly as we build new debtors' prisons, Lord, would you tear them down. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. me